This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey everybody, this is Lane with the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. Please go to the network tab on the website and sign up for the investing database for access to the deals that I come across. We are calling it the Hui Deal Pipeline Club. And also email me any questions at lame at simplepassivecashflow.com. Today, I have Haley Ridge on the line. How's it going, Haley? Hi, I'm great. How are you, Lane? So I've worked with uh, Haley quite a bit over the last few years. She's closed quite a few of my loans, almost double digits up to this point. And I wanted to bring her on the line to uh, share a little bit about her business. And let's give people the latest and greatest on ending space. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks again for having me, Lane. I appreciate being here. Hoping to, to um, offer some valuable insight and education to your listeners. So let's start with the Fannie Freddie stuff, right? The GSEs, government sponsored entities. These I refer to as the golden tickets. These uh, are the highest leverage, the lowest interest rates, type lending for investors that you'll find literally on the planet. We always want to start in lending by exhausting all of those possibilities. To further define that, let me just add that per qualified individual, there are 10 golden tickets. Of those 10 golden tickets, it's important to note that there are two very specific underwriting books, if you will, that we must adhere to depending on where the investor is in their acquisition. So the first book is applicable to loan spots one through six. Then there's a new book or new set of guidelines that an individual has to meet in loan spots seven through 10. I should also, it's probably important to mention that in all of this, the guidelines are subject to change. In fact, oftentimes um, it's the equivalent of a moving target is kind of the joke that we make, but uh, there is some truth in that. Uh, It's constantly moving and changing. And I would say that um, for every two steps forward we make uh, with what the lending side, conventional lending side allows, it seems like oftentimes there's three steps back. So um, we're pretty comfortable in that space because we've been living in it for you know the last 10 years, at least post the 2000, almost 10 years, 2008, 2009 crash. Uh, it's, it's been quite a challenge to keep up with the ebbs and flows. But as it stands today, of the 10 conventional loans each individual has, in one through six, an individual should be prepared for a certain set of qualifications. And again, in the seven through 10, the differences primarily are going to be that the qualification bar is raised a little bit. So credit, assets, and debt-to-income ratio are going to be a little bit more scrutinized in the 7 through 10 space versus the 1 through 6. And these um, are these, uh, we, we like to call these the box. You have to have different qualifications to fit in the box. And these, this is the box that's potentially could be purchased by the government via Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Exactly right. All of these will ultimately be purchased and backed by... Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, whether or not that's, I mean, typically on the secondary market and resale, a lot of times you'll see that your servicer might be B of A or it might be um, Chase. I mean, there are different servicing rights, but ultimately these conventional loans will be repurchased by Fannie Freddie on the secondary. You know, people come up to me and they they say, okay, cool, I'm going to go get a loan and I'm going to go to Chase Bank or Bank of America, and then I, I immediately kind of hit my head on the side of the wall because I know, you know, they're going to go after a non-owner-occupied home or investment property and they're not going after a primary residence or a owner-occupied property. What are some of the, the nuances there of getting these non-owner-occupied or investment properties? I would say that the three most heavily weighted criteria in qualifying for the investor or non-owner-occupied, as you put it, are going to be credit, assets, and debt-to-income ratio. I can define each of those, but before I get into that, maybe I should just mention that when you're talking about an individual, an investor, that's looking to secure these golden tickets, or what did you call them, Lane? I'm sorry, the 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 in-the-box, the box box loans? Yeah, you know, all these qualifications, the investor has to fit in the box. If it doesn't fit in the box, like you have a debt-to-income over 50, I'm sure you'll talk about this later, but you don't fit in the box. No bueno for you. right. (laughs) Exactly right. So when we're talking about the point I want to make there is is that if an individual is is interested in securing these these great loans, 30-year fixed mortgages at really great interest rates, 
the big boy banks. You had mentioned Chase. So we've got Chase, you've got Wells Fargo, you've got B of A. Um, these are who we call the big boys. They're going to be a little, their box is going to be a lot more restrictive than what the actual purest form of the Fannie Mae guideline allows. This is what we refer to in the industry as uh, commonly overlays. So if Fannie Mae, as just a, a quick example, Fannie Mae allows 10 of these loans per qualified individual. B of A, for example, has an overlay that says you may only have four with us. We won't do up to 10. We'll only, we'll limit you to four. Um, so one of the things when you had, you'd mentioned banging your head against the wall, when you hear clients or, or fellow investors are looking at some of the bigger players, um, they're going to be a little bit more restrictive. Their box is going to be smaller. But outside of that, let me get into some of the more particular or specific details surrounding the credit and the assets and the debt to income ratio. Let's start with credit. Anthony, so remember, before, we, before yeah. we move on to that, you know, we talk about the big box and we beat up on them a lot. <laughs> it's easy. We're also yeah. talking about credit unions. I mean, they're all selling it back to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac anyway. For the most part, I would say, yeah. You know, a smaller local area bank, maybe even a credit union, they may have some of their own portfolio money that they are not going to resell that might be a little looser. Uh, but those are usually depository relationships where, you know, with a certain amount of money in the institution itself, they may be able to offer some outside of the, the traditional box. But that's a whole other conversation, I think. Yeah, yeah, we, we can kind of talk that at the end, but I, let's, let's sure. continue on so we don't confuse the folks. Okay, sure. All right, so let's start with credit. Um, so from an underwriter's perspective for real estate investing, and remember, there are those two boxes. We're going to start by focusing on the, the one through six as related to the credit score requirements. It's kind of a vague rule, actually. There's no hard and fast for uh, a minimum credit score. I can take someone that might have a lower credit score, say 650, and get them approved for an investor loan if they have what we call compensating factors. This would be things like really strong liquid assets or a, a low debt-to-income ratio will circumvent or offset a slightly lower credit score. That's in loan spots 1 through 6. When we get into the underwriting guidelines in the loan spots 7 through 10, I was saying earlier, they raise the qualification bar on us. It is now a hard and fast, and an individual must maintain a minimum middle credit score of 720 or greater to qualify in loan spots 7 through 10. You know, without getting too far down the rabbit hole and talking about credit score and, and how it can be affected, uh, specifically with aggressive acquisition of real estate, just note that those are the kind of the baselines as it stands in underwriting guidelines today, subject to change, of course, but it's that's been pretty consistent throughout the years. I don't expect any big changes for the credit score requirement um, as it is today. Would you, as, as a listener, Lane, would you think that there would be any follow-up questions to that that I can go into, or should I get right into assets? Yeah, and, and by the time this podcast gets released, you know, the earlier half of 2017, these things change. And from just kind of looking at these requirements, because people will tell me, hey, you know, the one to four at one time is now one to six. I mean, there's small changes that happen, and they seem to happen every few months or so. Is there any place that, you know, for me that you know, a more experienced investor can go to some kind of central place to look at some cool chart that tells me these type of things? You know, once we understand it, that we can just get a quick reference. I have some kind of cheat sheets that might be helpful. I'd certainly be happy to send your way. Um, but I think overall, the only thing out there just in the open marketplace is the seller's guide. I think that anybody has access to that, but the seller's guide is like the worst set of stereo instructions you can imagine. Um, it's a 14, almost a 1400 page document that is fairly cryptic and it would be very difficult to navigate to find the particular um, information that you were after. So, you know, the answer is really no, not that I'm aware of. I have a few kind of one page matrices, if you will, for different products like delayed financing. I know that you're familiar with and just kind of an overall understanding of purchase versus refinance and the different LTVs, et cetera. But I'm happy to pass that along so that you can in turn hand it out to your investors. Going back to the big box, just drive the point home that sometimes you'll go to a big bank and you'll say, well, what the heck? I heard it on this podcast where you can get one to 10 and they're only telling me I can do one to four. I mean, that's just plain as day why you don't want to go to those type of banks. And right. I mean, it's kind of like going to Vanguard or one of these big brokerage places and asking them to self-direct your account and they'll look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> right. So let's so anyway, dig, yeah. let's dig into like the debt to income, the, the cash on hand, and we already talked about the credit score. 
Yep. Okay. Let's move on to assets. I, I usually save DTI for last because it's kind of the more complicated of the three primary components. So assets, there's two different types of assets that in underwriting will be considered on a conventional loan. And of those two different types, there's two different ways in which they'll be applied. So let's start with the types. Um, the types of assets are just very simply liquid and non-liquid. For liquid, that's the same as your checking and your savings, your money market accounts, pretty self-explanatory. Your non-liquid are going to be your retirement accounts. Okay, This is your 401k, your self-directed IRA, your whole life insurance policy, etc. Um, more tangible non-liquid assets like uh, gold bars or you know, old cars that you've renovated or rehabbed, those will not be applicable. They won't count in underwriting. They've got to be more on the retirement long-term tangible. So those are, are sort of a definition of the types of assets. The way in which they're applied are going to be for an individual's down payment. And then there's also a reserve requirement that comes into play. So let me define each of those. The down payment must be in liquid form only. There are uh, exceptions to that. So for example, a HELOC, a home equity line of credit that might be attached to an individual's primary residence is considered liquid, right? It was it was an asset of theirs within equity form. That's acceptable as liquid down payment. But overall, it's, it's basically liquid is uh, what you must provide, and the liquid form of those funds must be sourced and seasoned. By sourced and seasoned, that means that over a two-month look back, two months' worth of bank statements, I must be able to prove that whatever those funds are being used for your down payment, that they originated with the individual. So if there's a large deposit, for example, in either one of the two bank statements that we're using to show someone's cash to close, I need to be able to paper trail that as having originated with the individual. Let's say they liquidated some stocks. Let's say that they made a balance transfer from one account to the next. Those types of transactions are perfectly feasible and paper trailable, right? Those are sourced and seasoned. Um, one of the analogies that I use, let's say great aunt Alice left you $50,000 or handed you $50,000 and said, here you go, Lane, go ahead and, and invest in real estate or go on vacation, whatever it was. Those funds will only be admissible as sourced and seasoned once they've hit that 60 day mark. I don't want a bank statement with that $50,000 in it that shows the deposit, but I will take the following two months bank statements that just show that 50,000 as a balance right? Because I cannot source that 50000 deposit as having originated with the individual. It was kind of a, a gift from a relative. That would be an example of what would not work as sourced and seasoned. Right. And to, and to take that further, a lot of people, what they're doing is getting 10 Fannie Mae loans in one spouse's name and 10 in the other by putting the title and mortgage under one person's name. Yeah, you need to have the, the income to show that, to be able to qualify for the loans, but that's the way people are trying to get 20 loans of these golden tickets, as we're saying. But you gotta just make sure that if you're transferring that 50 grand or that 25 grand for the down payment, it's gotta be in that person's bank account. You can't just slide it over there. Maybe talk to us a little bit about joint account status and how that works. Yeah, if it's a husband and wife and it's it's actually, let's say, just a checking account and it's joint, both of them are on the account, that's perfectly fine. The underwriter will probably ask the individual for an LOE, a letter of explanation, just signifying that he or she has 100% access to that account and those funds. But in that case, it's fine if it's a joint account. But let's say an example of where um, Mr. Smith is trying to use his wife's and she's not on the loan with him. He's doing it by himself. He's trying to use his wife's 401k for his reserve requirement. That's not applicable. Or he's trying to use his wife's um, savings account that only her name shows on the statement for his down payment. Also, that's not allowed. But if it's a joint account, then that that's feasible. That's fine. Now, there's a few few pitfalls in there that I need to mention. If within that joint account, there are deposits of, let's say, ordinary income for the spouse. Let's use Mr. and Mrs. Smith again. Mr. Smith is applying for a loan. And he's using the joint account as the seasoned funds for his down payment. Well, let's say that the balance is $25,000 in that account. And of that $25,000 in the last 30 days, 5000 of it came from his spouse's ordinary income, her paycheck. That 5000 will be backed out of the twenty-five. Is there some formula like your monthly income times two or divided by two or something like that? That that threshold needs to be less? Oh, less I think I know that? what you're talking about. Yeah. It's less than that threshold, it flies underneath the radar. Yes, good, yes. Okay, so, wow, look at you, Lane. Yeah, that's good retention. So what, what he's referring to is is that for any deposits that are 25% or less 
than either of the individual's, well, the, the borrower's ordinary income, it's not going to be questioned. So, for example, if Mr. Smith makes $10,000 a month and there is a $2,499 deposit in there, it won't be questioned. It's not going to require that source and seasoning. But anything over 25% of Mr. Smith's ordinary income that shows as a deposit in any of his accounts or his statements that we're using to prove his cash to close, it'll be scrutinized in, in that it will require that paper trail. And if we can't show that it originated with him, it would not be admissible to use for his down payment sourced in season funds. I think at one time I was getting like, a, I don't know what it was, but like $3,500 check for something I sold or whatever. <laughs> and, and they said, really? You just cut this check in half and <laughs> right. give, me, give me like five hundred dollars cash. I mean, that's what, why I know it. It's crazy, right? I mean, it's 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 almost beyond belief for some people, and and I I can totally relate. I mean, I live this existence on a day in and day out. But the unfortunate truth is, is that you know we we got to go back to that golden rule. The one with the gold makes the rules. And if we want four and a half percent on a thirty-year fixed mortgage at twenty percent down on an investment property, um. Unfortunately, sometimes it's, it's just, it's the cross we have to bear. I'll just leave it there. I'm going to get a little political and say, Uh-oh. I mean, really, like, it's got to be this hard to get a property that works. I mean, I don't know why they make it so difficult. I, you know what? And you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir, man. Um, it's funny. And uh, again, rabbit hole, I don't know how far you want me to take you down this. But if you look at the guidelines, let's, let's go first time homebuyer, right? There are programs out there that allow someone with a 620 middle credit score that are only putting 3.5% down that can be borrowed for their down payment. They can have seller credits towards the closing costs. All of these things um, never had home ownership before. The criteria for, for qualifying and approving that individual, which is a in everybody's mind, there's no way you could look at that and say that's that's a, a lower risk than what an investor is qualified to do. Most investors are, are very, very well qualified in credit score, debt-to-income ratio, uh, liquidity. They've got 20% at minimum uh, skin in the game. I, I fully um, agree. It's something that I continue to bring up in, in my quarterly meetings with secondary markets. Uh, I don't have an in yet with Fannie and Freddie personally, but the moment I do, that'll be one of my primary uh, points of contention to say, are you guys aware of this? Do you even see on the radar that these investor loans are so heavily scrutinized um, and held to such a, a much higher standard, let's loosen it a little bit. I mean, I understand the premise that it's an investment property, right? So if the proverbial stuff is going to hit the fan, the investor is probably going to cut loose the investment property before their primary residence, okay? And that's where the, the risk layer started 100 years ago. But at this point, I think that it's appropriate to kind of let loose a little bit and, and give the investor a little bit more credit for their credit worthiness, if you will. We were still working on this uh, one property for my buddy, and you know, it's like it's they have good income and they're very credit worthy. Yet something changed at the end, and the debt to income changed from like fifty one percent to forty nine percent, and now everything went red. And I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. One one percentage point, or yeah. There's usually a workaround. We can, if if you want to talk offline, I'll figure out who that is, and we'll see what our options are. You know, we, we know how to navigate the battleship in a creek. Yeah. And that's, well. and that's really important because you go to these other big banks, they're just going to say, Oh, we can't do it. Right. Close the book. It's, it's done. See you later. Yeah. 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 Sorry. So we, we uh, went off on a rabbit hole on that one. What, what was the <laughs> next, uh... So that's assets. I think we covered assets. Oh, you know what? We didn't get to reserves. Let me, let me touch on the reserves. So we figured out the down payment, um, liquid source and seasoned. I defined that the reserve requirement, um, there's been a recent change, and I don't have the exact to it, but it's similar enough to what I'm going to communicate here. In fact, I think that it's it's a little less invasive than what the old rules were. So the old rules, I'm going to use those. They're probably within a few hundred bucks if you actually did the math. You'll That'll make sense in a second. So I'm going to start there. Um, the reserve requirement, so this goes back to the two underwriting books, Loan Spots 1 through 6 and 7 through 10. In Loan Spots 1 through 6, the reserve requirement can be liquid or non-liquid form, first of all, and it is equal to the following. For the subject property, the subject property is the property in question, the one that you, the individual is under contract for and working on closing. We need to be able to show six months worth of PITI, right? That's principal, interest, taxes, and insurance, and HOA if it applies, 
on the subject property plus an additional two months PITI for each subsequent rental property within that first six loan spots. Okay, so let me give you an example. Let's say that the individual has a primary residence and is at uh, property number six. So for property number six, I need to show six months PITI. Then for property number five, an additional two months PITI. Property number four, two months PITI. Three PITI. And property number two PITI. The primary residence is never counted as part of the reserve requirement, just the investment properties and or second home if it applies. Okay? So let me just say one more time. Loan spots one through six, it is required to show in reserves six months worth of the property's PITI plus an additional two months PITI for any subsequent rental property in loan spots one through six. Primary residence does not count. Now we move into that seven through ten loan loan spots. It now becomes, they raise the bar, kind of like in the credit requirements, it now becomes six months PITI for all rental properties. So let me give you an example. When I say that, um, I, I sense that uh, when I'm giving my, my one-on-one coaching with my clients, I sense that um, they kind of go, whoa, that's a lot. That sounds like a lot. So, But let me put it into perspective. Let's use an average price point, an average purchase of $100,000, okay? And let's say that you've got 20% down. So our loan amount is $80,000, okay? In that $80,000, our principal and interest, taxes and insurance payment is going to be, we're going to factor... Oh, let's say 650. Okay, that's that's probably a high number. But let's just say that the PITI is 650. And let's say that of that 650 in, in this example, an individual is at property number 10 and they have their primary residence and nine rentals. Let's say those nine rentals are exactly cookie cutter, exactly the same property over and over and over and again. So it's 650 a month, PITI. The math would be this 650 times, oops, I, I can't do mental math. 650 times. Six months is 3,900 times nine properties is $35,100. So again, just to put into perspective, it's not as, as ominous as it sounds. Depending on the price point and the properties themselves and what those monthly payments are, um, when you get to property number 10, it may not be as big a number as it might have sounded. And remember, the non-liquid accounts, your 401k is perfectly eligible to satisfy the reserve requirement on underwriting. I'll just point out a couple of years ago, this big boost in cash reserve needs was after property four. Today, it's property six, right? Mm-hmm. They, yeah, they so that's that two steps forward, one step back thing. Yeah, they loosened it a little bit. Right. And then what I would do and what a lot of people do is they can use their 401k. Before, you used to be able to take like 80% of that. But I guess today, you're saying you can take 100% of your 401k. Correct. So if you have 200 grand in there... You can use two hundred grand as your cash reserves, so you easily fulfill that requirement. Easily, and if you're looking at, let's say that you've got some single family in that price range, or you've got some two to four units in the four and five and six hundred thousand dollar price range, usually the four hundred one ks, you know, for those of of the workforce that have been there long enough, they're usually more than enough to to cover the reserve requirement. It's not as as scary as it sounds when you're hearing it first time verbally. Cool. Now that you scared everybody, and now you feel <laughs> they, they feel a little better now. What's the last one? Okay, let's go to debt to income ratio. So this gets a little bit complicated. I'm going to try and abbreviate, um, and it's it's very individual anyway. But um, so I'm going to give you the high level. So debt to income ratio is actually a pretty simple formula. We will take the income that is derived from the documentation that the individual has supplied us. We'll calculate what's allowed, um, and we're going to divide that number by the monthly liability found almost, I'll define almost in a second, almost exclusively on the individual's credit report. The almost is going to be equal to things like rent. If an individual is a renter versus a homeowner, that needs to be calculated in the debt-to-income ratio, but that's something that will not be found on a credit report, so that has to be uh, looked at separately. Also, HOA dues, not found on a credit report, but must be in the debt-to-income ratio. And then lastly, if they have mortgages that are not impounded, meaning that they pay their taxes and insurance separately from the actual mortgage payment, those will also not be found on a credit report. But two, they must be within the debt-to-income ratio calculation. So with the exception of just those three things, everything else that goes into a person's DTI will be found exclusively in that credit report. So things like uh, cell phone bills or utilities, those do not count against an individual's DTI. So again, 
It's the monthly income that we have extracted or derived from the documentation that has been supplied to us, and it's divided by the monthly liabilities found on the credit report. It's a very simple formula, actually. The threshold for debt-to-income ratio in underwriting is a maximum 50% on an investment-type home. We like to see the DTI closer to 45% or less. The lower the debt-to-income ratio, the better. But back to that compensating factor piece, somebody that has a strong credit score or or solid assets can take their debt-to-income ratio all the way to 50% if necessary. We can't exceed that by even 0.01%. Rental income is counted as part of the debt-to-income ratio formula. There's a few formulas that are used in calculating the individual rental income, but that gets a little bit complicated. I'm not sure going into that on this podcast is is helpful. It probably will only serve to confuse people, but on a one-off basis, I do individual education with our clients that decide to go through the gauntlet of our pre-qualification, and they'll get all of that uh, that follow-up information if it's useful to them. Well, let's let's go into it because this is a you know, this okay. is a, the run-on-the-mill podcast. We're actually buying properties here. All right. So, so what this debt-to-income, the big thing that I found interesting is that when you buy these investment properties, your debt-to-income actually improves vastly. Yeah. So the more yeah. properties you get, the easier it is to qualify for these loans. But the trouble is, to fit in the box, you have to have landlording experience. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. You know, yeah. Do you still have to have one year of being a landlord to be able to take new income or the supposed income that you're going to derive off new rentals? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So that's actually an overlay Lane, it's not required as, as part of the actual Fannie Mae guidelines. So you don't have to have any landlord ownership in order to use a portion of, of the gross rents to offset the new liability. Um, where it starts to get complicated is, is there's two ways in which rental income is calculated. The first way actually is very simple, and it is applicable only in the acquisition year, which means from the, the date that the property is purchased up until that property hits the Next, federal tax returns filed Schedule E. That's where all rental properties lie. So within a federal tax return, there's all these different schedules. Schedule E, for those of you that might not be aware, is where all of your rental properties will go. So the acquisition year formula applies all the way up until the property purchased in that year hits the next filed tax return, Schedule E. So depending on when in the property you purchased or when in the year you purchased the property, against when you file that year's tax return, whether it's in April and October, is going to define how long we get to use the following formula. The formula is this. We get to take 75% of the gross rents minus the property's PITI. Again, principal interest taxes and insurance, HOA if it applies. So as an easy round number example, let's say that our gross rents are $1,000 a month, and let's say that our PITI is 500 a month. This is the example I always use just because it's easy to follow. From a lending perspective, I get to take 75% of the 1,000, an easy 750, minus my expense, my PITI 500, leaving us with what? A 250 positive, right? That 250 positive now goes into the income column when we are recalculating the individual's debt to income ratio. So in that example, it will only prove to reduce, aka improve, which is what you were talking about, improve their overall debt to income ratio. Now, the positive number that you're going to get is going to be subjective to the property and or the market, of course. But I can tell you that in the last eight, nine years that I've run that particular formula, it has done nothing but produce a positive number. I've never seen it produce a negative, not in this real estate cycle. So whether it's $1 or $250, the acquisition year formula will only serve, as you had mentioned, Lane, to improve an individual's debt to income ratio by, by lowering it. Okay. Now, a couple of points on that. If the property is not rented during the loan process, that's okay. We can use what we call assumptive rents. Okay, those will be found on the actual appraisal, and we'll do the same thing. The appraiser is going to give us a median value of rental income for like kind properties within the you know mile radius or so, and we're going to take that number and, and take seventy five percent of it and minus out the PITI, and, and that's what we use for the qualification. Now, once that property closes and you're on to purchase property number two. It's important to note that it's the subject property, the property that's in question in, in, and in underwriting at that point in time that gets the benefit of those assumptive rents. Once you've closed on that property and it's now you are the owner of it, until it becomes rented, we cannot use assumptive rents on that property anymore. Only a lease will justify us using that 75% gross rent formula after you are the owner. So as an example of what would be a negative impact, 
is if you purchased property A, it wasn't rented when we closed, that's not a problem, I can use assumptive rents, but that closes, and now you're on to property number B, but property number A has not gotten a tenant yet, it's still unleased. So in that example, property number B, I can still use assumptive rents, but property A, I have to hit the individual for the full PITI without any credit of rental income for it until it, until it gets rented, in which case I can use the lease. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if I signed up for Lane's uh, Hui Deal Flow Pipeline Club and I got this turnkey rental and Lane says it rents for a thousand bucks, you say I can't use that on my debt to income yet. You can use it during the process of purchasing that property. But once you close on it and, and you become the owner of that property until it's rented, it no longer gets the assumptive rents. It, it has to be hit in the full PITI. Right. So that's if you're doing simultaneous you know, right, one yeah. after another. And I'm sure you guys can work some magic to uh, do it all at the same time. Or we, yeah, we just sequence it. I mean, it's, it's, it's an easy enough fix. Either they're looking, they have to start looking for pre-rented. If, if the property's leased, right, then, and they're doing simultaneous transactions, two or three at a time, if there are leases in place, then the assumptive rents are no longer necessary. We actually have the leases. Otherwise, depending on the debt-to-income ratio, if it's tight enough, we're just going to have to sequence the closings appropriately so that it supports the, the goal. Right. And I'd like to take the opportunity now to call out and give a shout out to my friend who's listening out there. And you know who you are. You're the guy who listens to this podcast at two times speed and is putting all <laughs> kinds of stuff on your Schedule E, like your uh, Tesla Model X or F-150. <laughs> It's more than 6,500 pounds and buying iPhones and all kinds of cool stuff. This is where you get yourself into trouble. So hold you're- on. You're, you're, you're going, you're jumping ahead. So what, what he's talking about, I think, Lane, so that's the, the acquisition year formula. What you're talking about is once these properties start hitting the Schedule E, right? You're talking about the second formula. Right. It's going gonna, gonna to come there for haunt you, right? <laughs> yeah. So what happens is, so let me try to define that. The formula for the Schedule E is is way too complicated to try and verbalize over the phone or a podcast. But what I will tell you is, is that the benefit that we investors get from the acquisition year formula will almost always become a deterrent or a negative once it hits the Schedule E, at least for the first few years of ownership. That's pretty typical. Um, One of the the biggest culprits there is that, let's say, for example, you purchase a property mid-year. Okay, let's say you purchase a property in July. You don't get it rented until maybe August. In that example, you might only have four or five months worth of income to offset the front-loaded expenses that you're going to want to write off. Now, one of the things I pride ourselves on as a company is, is that as educators, first and foremost, we're able to take our investors and kind of show them very clearly formulated Excel spreadsheets, how the Schedule E will impact their debt to income ratio for any given year, right? And making sure that we address it up front via a draft Schedule E so that I can best advise the individual on how to proceed if qualifying for conventional mortgages is important to him or her in that year. It's very important to be looking at a draft in advance of them filing that return. Once the return is filed, the bell is rung. There's not much I can do. But if we look at a draft and we're able to do the Schedule E computation together, I'll actually show them the formula. It's, again, too hard to verbalize. But in doing that, I'm going to come back with a few pieces of advice. I'm either going to come back and say, uh, Mr. Kawaka, file your return. This looks great. No problem. The second piece of advice is I may come back and say, sir, you're going to want to file an extension for the 2016 year if you want to qualify for conventional financing in 2017. What that will do for us is it really just buys us an additional six months worth of time, allowing us to use the old, more favorable acquisition year formula until October, if that makes sense. If you're tracking, what I might say is, listen, don't file in April for the properties that are going to hit your Schedule E from 2016. Don't file in April. File an extension, and that way it gives me until October 15th of 2017 to use that 75% gross rents formula, right? Once it's on the Schedule E, though, that formula changes, and it'll all, almost always be a negative to the debt-to-income ratio for the first few years of ownership. Now, all of this really baseline, it depends on where the debt-to-income ratio starts. I mean, if you come to me with a, a 14% debt-to-income ratio, a few hundred dollars negative on the Schedule E is not going to be impactful. File your return. But those are some of the pieces to the puzzle that we're going to identify with you as a, a post pre-call work, follow-up call, again, if, if the individual finds value in some of that education. 
Wait, you're, so you're telling me we actually have to plan? I mean, how do we eat? <laughs> right, right. Or I, I don't know what I, I mean, I don't know what I eat for breakfast. But yes, it's important that qualifying in any given year, um, this is one of the, the primary things I'll, I'll say to my clients or coach them, just don't file another federal tax return until we've had an opportunity to look at the draft review, at least Schedule E first, assuming the rest of the income has stayed relatively the same. That Schedule E can be the difference between qualifying in the year or not. You might have to hold a year before you can qualify conventionally again if you file before having you know someone in the industry review it and, and scrutinize it with you. Good. So anything uh, we missed on those the three big things right there? No, I think I mean I, I think that's that's quite a bit of information for your listeners to absorb. It's it's pretty individual. I'd say that. So I think that there's there's more information to pass on, but it's really going to depend on the the particular qualifications per person. We talk a lot about syndications on this podcast, and most of the time, these offers are only for those with an accredited status per the rules of the SEC. Now sponsoring the Simple Passive Cashflow podcast is the American Homeowner Preservation Fund, a crowdfunding solution to the mortgage crisis in America, empowering investors to fund the purchase of distressed mortgages. The AHP fund aims to keep people in their homes by investing in notes. It's an opportunity to earn returns while feeling good about making positive social impact. You can start investing with a little hundred dollars. You can learn more at investinahp.com. And if you want the free Burn Zone book, please send me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. Can we talk about this locking in on the interest rate? At some point, you know, a few weeks into the transaction, you're going to ask the question, Mr. Investor, do you want to lock your rate? So talk to us about the nuances of that. Well, interest rates themselves come with a matrix, right? So uh, every interest rate that's, that's locked in, there's a whole matrix or a rate sheet Within this rate sheet, there's a variety of variables that set the stage for what your actual interest rate is going to be in any given day. It's important to note that interest rates change daily, sometimes even multiple times a day in a very volatile market. The variables can be things like uh, loan size. That plays a big a big role. The lower loan sizes, I'd say 60000 and below, carry a higher adjustment. Okay, So you can expect a slightly higher interest rate on a $55,000 mortgage than you would see on a $100,000 mortgage. Um, the occupancy, obviously, is another really big one. A non-owner-occupied property is going to carry a much higher adjustment than a primary residence would carry. Some of the other variables are going to be credit score plays a role. Loan to value, 80 versus 75% plays a role. Uh, property type, single-family residence versus a two- to four-unit property. Um, some investors are going to add an adjustment to rate for investors that have more than six finance properties. They'll still do them, but they're going to, it's kind of a risk layer. So there's all these pluses and minuses. They're called price adjustments. And at the end of the day, when you have the criteria of the particular loan figured out, then you can say, okay, here's where your interest rate falls today. Now, oftentimes as a company, we advise not to lock in an interest rate until we have the appraisal back. There's a few reasons for this. Um, the appraiser or the appraisal, excuse me, is the, the one kind of caveat or the one piece that can be responsible for delaying a close date. If you lock in an interest rate too early and your appraisal is delayed, which is uh, largely out of everybody's control, then you risk blowing your lock, which means typically uh, an interest rate is locked for 30 days. Okay. If you exceed that 30 days, then one of two things, you're going to get worst case pricing and or you're going to have to pay an extension uh, to extend the lock, right? Um, so for that reason, um, primarily, we like to have the appraisal at least uh, this, the inspection scheduled before we advise locking in an interest rate. Um, but technically speaking, an interest rate can be locked in the moment the initial disclosures go out and are signed by the individual that gives us the authority to actually lock in an interest rate should the individual um, decide that's what they want to do. Cool. Can we talk a little bit about portfolio loans? What are they? Because yeah. what, what does an investor do after they have their 10 or 20 loans as a couple? Yeah, good. And I'm, I, I meant to touch on this. I don't think I mentioned it. Um, it was really smart of you, Lane, to kind of mention to everybody. It's something that I really try to beat in everybody's head. If you've got a couple or whatever it might be, it's important to see if the individual qualifies independent of the other one. Because if their ambitions are... A certain number of homes, these golden tickets, the Fannie Freddie stuff really is going to produce the best results, the best ROI, rate of return, right? So if we can extend that 10 
to 20, it makes sense. So for anybody out there listening, make sure that you're exploring that option, um, qualifying independent of your spouse and seeing if, if the qualifications can be met for um, each of you to obtain a certain number or all 10 of those golden tickets. Um, but past that, what do we do as investors? Um, one of the nice things I think that we're starting to really see come online is, is that there has been uh, a nice influx of secondary investors outside of the Fannie Freddie um, that are starting to come out of the woodwork. We've been waiting for this to happen probably, I mean, well, a few years after the crash anyway. It seems like it's been a long time coming, but we have access to a lot more aggressive type loan products beyond the Fannie Freddie 10. Um, they're still not going to be as aggressive, obviously, but as time goes on, I'm finding that the, they're more competitive and in line with what Fannie Freddie offers. So let me um, define that a little bit better. So beyond 10, we have access to pretty limitless amounts of alternative financing. This is called non-QM. Um, it stands for qualified mortgage. I won't get into that, but these are non-QM loans. We can have options at 30-year fixed. The underwrite is a little bit different. It's more about the individual property than it is about the individual. So the property is more scrutinized, kind of like a commercial underwrite, but it's still an individual loan to the individual. Um, this is not a cross-collateralized product. 30-year uh, fixed, a slightly different underwrite, and the interest rate is the other primary difference between this and, say, the Fannie Freddie stuff. So if Fannie Freddie is pricing at 4.5 today, the same criteria or characteristics of the loan on specialty are probably closer to six and a half, seven percent. Um, on the loan sizes that I think are average per, per you know nationwide averages, that hundred thousand range, let's say, the monthly difference between a four and a half percent and and let's use six and a half is roughly about a hundred dollars a month. Just to put into perspective, it's not maybe as awful as it might sound if you're taking a two to two and a half point jump in interest rate, uh, but it allows us to keep keep investing. So. It's a, a very reasonable alternative to the Fannie Freddie once you've exhausted those those loan spots. Yeah, so I'll chime in here and give my input. After I filled up all my Fannie Freddie slots, I started to look into these uh, these other providers, and they just weren't very attractive. I mean, when you, like you said, you're looking at five percent for a Fannie Mae loan, but it's you're talking about like six, seven percent and points on top of that additional points. And I just couldn't make the numbers work. You weren't cash flowing with a few hundred dollars or even a couple hundred dollars of cash flow at that point. And that's why I, my path has pivoted to multifamily syndications. And if you guys want to set up a call, we can talk about the nuances there. But it's not as simple as just filling up 10 Fannie Mae slots, 10 in your spouse's name, and then getting continuing on this path. At some point, people's paths start to diverge. And it really comes down to your goals. Everyone's path is different. For some people, they don't even, they shouldn't even be bothering with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac single family home or one to fourplex rentals. So what is a, like a portfolio loan? That's when a private company has a loan. Is that right? It's, yeah, it's, it's a non-QM. So there's, there's, they're all over the place out there. Um, it's, it's where they're going to go ahead and they're going to be looking again at the property first and foremost. And they're going to lend 80, sometimes even 85% loan to value on a purchase. And if, if the long-term buy-and-hold is a strategy, you're probably going to always be looking at the 30-year fixed. Um, but yeah, they need to expect 65 to 7% as an interest rate on average. If they want to take a shorter term, let's say a five-year arm, then they can reduce that interest rate by about a half a point. That, that, that uh, is a little bit scary for me to be looking at a shorter term. I mean, everybody has to agree that interest rates are going to rise. There's nowhere for them to go but up. Uh, some of us have been really pleasantly surprised that they've stayed as low as they have for as long as they have. Uh, the five-year for those that are, are wanting to really save on the cash flow past the conventional 10, uh, I might offer that the 30-year for half a point difference um, is just not justified in my mind. But um, yeah, there's, there's probably another 50 of those loans available per individual, maybe more out there now, and, and that's just going to continue to grow. I might also offer, when we're talking about the portfolio lane, I am seeing improvements, you know, even weekly. I'm seeing new products out there. So keep an eye on that. I, I think that we're going to start finding that the secondary investors are willing to be a little bit more in line and more competitive with the Fannie Freddie stuff. So, yeah, for those of you that are interested or, or getting close to the 10, 
uh, feel free to, to email or, or call us and just get a, a pulse on that. It's, it's starting to kind of heat up, I think. And I found a portfolio loan through a bank, but that requires hard work and effort as opposed to just Google searching portfolio loan. I think I got like a 3.25, 25-year M, but it was like a five-year reset or, or arm. But I figure with as much interest as I saved in the first five years, I mean, I think the break-even point would have been like interest rate would have had to go up a few to five percent points and to me that was that worked with me i could take that risk a little higher risk a little higher reward and i was able to pick up the property excellent so it's a little, little more advanced strategy but just figure out what your exit plan is because on that property i thought i was going to hold it five to 15 years that was my plan it wasn't a legacy asset by all means and I, yeah i think that you're right lane that's that's a good point um it's it's going to be uh subjective to the property itself right uh, a shorter term, if you've if you've got those plans, then yeah, of course, a shorter term loan is is perfectly acceptable. If you know that this is a property that you never want to get rid of, then yeah, the argument can be made to to focus on that thirty year thirty year fixed product if you've already extended past the ten specialty products are available to you. I think I'm gonna break up the portfolio loan and this next topic of the delayed financing up in separate mini podcasts. Can you talk about the delayed financing for us? Yeah. What is this used for? And, uh... Well, yeah, delayed financing actually um, came about uh, many years ago, uh, shortly after the crash. What was happening was is that the, the big hedge funds, the Blackstones of the world, were going out there and, and buying up all these distressed assets in huge bulk. And, and they had cash, very, very deep pockets. And the individual was really struggling to compete. So Fannie Freddie came out with a uh, because of how restrictive the conventional guidelines were, right? So Fannie Freddie came out with the delayed refi rules. Um, they've evolved a little bit over time, but as they stand today, this is where an individual can pay cash for a property. It must be cash, right? Sourced and seasoned funds, and then they can turn around and they can get a refi cash out loan, referred to as the delayed refi at 70% of the new appraised value. So if an individual is paid cash of $50,000 for a property, um, I'm going to add a, a detail in here. Let's say that the property required maybe $20,000 of renovation or rehab work. So they paid cash, 70000 all in. There's a detail I need to come back and, and explain on that. Um, 70000 all in, but they know in that that the comps provide that the property is probably going to appraise for about $100,000 once the renovation is complete, et cetera. We can go in and do a cash-out refi to 70% of the after repair value, the ARV, not to exceed the original investment. So regardless of how high the ARV uh, comes in, the individual will never be able to get more back out than what their original investment is. And in our example, that would be 70000 so let me take this a step further. Let's say that in that example, they've got 70000 in. We have an appraisal in hand for 100000 My loan is going to be for 70000 to the individual. And then we've got to back out the closing costs, the taxes, the insurance, et cetera. Let's just assume for round numbers, that's $5,000. So the individual is going to pocket 65000 He had 70000 in. He gets 65000 back. So he's got $5,000 of skin in the game. The division in figuring out what the real leverage there is, is to divide the uh, cash back, that's 65, by the original acquisition of 70. I think I said that right. Uh, that math ends up being leverage of about 92%. That's a good number. Obviously, most of your listeners, I'm sure, are aware if they're already investing. Um, the higher the leverage, the higher the ROI, right? Right, and so, this is the first strategy that everybody thinks is the most amazing thing since sliced bread. But In the right market, it's pretty cool. Yeah, but I will caution people and say that a lot of people that listen to this podcast are high-paid professionals. They're short on time, and this stuff takes a while to screw around with. I mean, you're yeah. waiting a few months. Well, you could have just bought a turnkey rental and be cash flowing. You could have bought three turnkey rentals and cash flowing, and you know, put your money in there and and get the cash flow. In the amount of time it would take to do one delayed, yeah, I, I don't disagree. And the other thing, let me just offer, and I, I you may have been getting ready to say this lane, but that, that scenario that we just ran, right? Let's just say that 92% overall leverage with what you've got in versus what you end up getting back, okay, is exclusively, first of all, dependent on the appraised value. And by definition, an appraisal is an opinion of value, okay? So you need to be pretty sure that your due diligence has been done on the front end 
and you've got um, the, the, the supportive comps, the sold comps that we know are most likely to be used when we're looking at that appraised value. Um, the right market, the right property is when this works and you've got, there's some due diligence that is involved in scouting that. It, it doesn't work just anywhere, uh, at least to its optimal benefit. I mean, delayed works fine, even if it's just an 80% LTV, that's still not bad. But if you're expecting to get in with very little skin in the game and get out of this, you know, get out of it that way, um, those aren't, you know, low lying fruit. You're going to have to do some work to find those. Again, if the ARV comes back at 80 grand, now you're screwed. Yeah. You put, you put all this money out, you had the sunk costs or the lost opportunity costs of having your money not working for you and something else, and you didn't get, you didn't reap the rewards. So that was a loss. And then also, I mean, this is a Fannie Mae loan again. Correct. So you need to substantiate all your rehab. So if you put 20 grand worth of rehab, but Uncle Johnny didn't give you an invoice, you can't submit that. Well, as long as it was on the HUD, I mean, there's, there's, uh, that might have been a little extra scrutiny if that's been your experience, Lane. As long as the per, and this was one of the things I wanted to circle back on, as long as the purchase price and that renovation work are both listed on the, the closing statement, I need both of those numbers on there. Uh, my investors are not scrutinizing the renovation. You're, you're eligible. That 70000 if it's listed on there, that's what you can get back. Okay, so that has to be invoices or? No, I don't. I've had that happen to me before, but it's rare. Typically, it's just the HUD. The HUD one, the settlement statement um, that shows the total acquisition cost and, and we're not looking for. Now, that's not to say that we don't supply a the invoices or the uh, the work that was done on the property when we order the appraisal. We want the appraiser to see. I'm spacing on the, the name of the document that we send in with the appraisal order. So we submit the scope of work with the appraisal order so that, you know, the appraiser can see what's all gone into it and why, you know, we've, we feel like we're justified at this value that we are expecting to get, blah, blah, blah. But that's going to be different than, than the underwriting. Uh, I've only had that come up a few times where actual invoices were required to prove that that work was done. So it's not, it's not a routine thing. And I would say anymore, most of our investors that we're selling to are not going to be asking for that documentation. So how does, how does the government know that yeah, you put $5,000 of paint in there, but where did this $15,000 of miscellaneous work come from? The rule for delayed financing is is the cost, the, the acquisition cost of the investment is the maximum they can get back. It doesn't get into that detail. So the actual Fannie Mae um, guideline just specifies that if the amount of, of acquisition costs listed on that HUD is the maximum the individual can get back. So it doesn't even get into any of the difference between renovation and, I mean, if it appraises for X and, and the borrower has Y into it, that's the maximum he or she can get back out. There isn't the differentiate, differentiating of what went to what. That's not to say that there aren't investors that will provide or will ask for overlays to say, I want to know, you know, what was all this for? They might, but that's not routine for the investors we sell to. Right. So if your appraisal comes back at eighty thousand dollars, but this property that I bought for fifty and I put another fifty into there, what happens? So wait, say that again. So you paid fifty and you put fifty in renovation. All of that is on the HUD. Well, right? how do, how does it go on the HUD? Is that just my my receipts? No. So what happens is is that um, the escrow company, when you're purchasing this property from ca for cash, right, the escrow company is going to work up that settlement statement. I know it's not referred to as a HUD uh, anymore. It's now a CD, a closing disclosure, but it's still the, the end settlement statement. Within the settlement statement, it's going to line itemize what the cost for the buyer and the seller were. Um, you're going to be front paying, you're going to be front loading uh, payment to the contractor. So What's happening there is, is that you've got your purchase price of 50000 and you've got 50000 in renovation. Both of those numbers must be on that, that closing statement, okay? That 50000 for renovation, escrow is dispersing that in advance to the GC, the general contractor, whomever that you're using, of them doing the work. So there's got to be a relationship. There's got to be some turnkey in there to make this work. I mean, I wouldn't just get um, allow escrow to give 50000 to some general contractor that I Googled and had a phone conversation with, there's got to be some relationships there, right? I mean, understanding that they're licensed and bonded, et cetera, et cetera. But that money is going to be distributed or dispersed to the general contractor in advance of them starting the work. So if I pick up a property from a wholesaler and it's kind of an empty shell, 
I buy the property, I pay cash, and I own this fifty thousand dollar house. Mm-hmm. And now I'm gonna go walk to Home Depot, find Contractor Joe, and pay him fifty thousand dollars to go fix my house. I guess I don't understand how. Where does it go on the uh, closing statement? That's a good. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So in that example, that extra fifty thousand you have now that you paid after you acquired the property is no longer eligible under the delayed financing rules for you to get back. It has to, both of those numbers have to be on the HUD and they would have had to have been dispersed at closing. So you can't do it after the fact. If the renovation dollars came after you acquired the property, then your only option for cashing out is to wait six months. If we need that appraised value to make it work, then the rule is we switch the product to the standard cash out refi, which requires a six months title ownership to be able to use that appraised value, but then we can go at 75% loan to value. So the other criteria I need to explain this, delayed refi only gives you a six month window from acquisition date to get the refinance complete and all the renovation complete. The standard cash out refi, those are the only two cash out refis available to investors. That's it in conventional loan terms. Delayed gives you six month window to get it done. The standard requires that you have six months title ownership before you can get it done on that appraised value. That's the, that's the key. That appraised value, needing that appraised value to make the numbers work is, is the bottom line here. So delayed, you only have six months to use the appraised value at 70%. Standard, you must have the property six months to use the appraised value at 75%. And if I do that standard cash out refi, let's just say I have eight properties to my name, can I mm-hmm. still use that? Because at one time... After There was a point of no return where you couldn't do any cash-out refis. Yes, that was not too long ago either. I think that the change for that was made in October of 2016. Now the standard cash-out is applicable in all 10 loan spots. It was restricted to six. Now it's I all the way up to 10. I think you and I need to talk. Ah, do you have some? Okay, I yeah, that should have been on your your radar. Um, we I'm sure we sent out a, an e-blast lane. I don't know how you missed that, but yes, it's it's eligible. All right. Uh, is there anything else you think we should cover or you want to give out your contact information? Sure, I'd love to. So website is www.ridgelendinggroup.com. Uh, there's lots of information on there. You can uh, fill out a very easy form intake that will allow uh, someone to contact you. Or if you just want to get uh, going on our getting started for pre-qualification, there's a second link for that where you'll be sent some links and some checklists of items that will have you fill out, et cetera. So Either one of those is fine, getting started or contact, or you can simply email info at ridgelendinggroup.com, distribution. I actually see those emails. I'm on them. Uh, And we will get right back in touch with you and and discuss what your goals are and and how we can help support them. All right. And I've been starting to do a little bit of mentorship and apprenticeship lately. And the first thing I always tell people is go get approved for a loan because you guys don't know if you guys approve or not. A lot of people have these living beliefs that, oh, their credit score is not high enough. Where there's things you can temporarily bump your credit score up and you you don't even know what you can qualify for yet until they go talk to someone like you guys. Yeah, there's some easy fixes to actually pretty simple organic. And I'm sorry, Landon, I'm up again. Toll free, I forgot to mention, if you guys want to call, is 855-747-4343, 855-74-RIDGE is an easy way to remember that. And if you guys use Fannie Mae Financing, make sure you guys have a swimming pool that is in working order. Because <laughs> if you don't, Fannie Mae will not give you, give you any money. <laughs> and, and make sure that you've got your DNA samples ready, right, Lane? Your, your blood vials, DNA samples, fingernail clippings, what else? Yeah, just uh, get ready. <laughs> a cheek swab. A che- <laughs> but it's worth it. Am I wrong? I mean, you're, where else are you going to find that kind of cheap money? you got to jump through those hoops. Now, let me me- hold on a second. Before we scare everybody away, I will mention that our pre-qualification process is, is quite rigorous. We call it the gauntlet of pre-qualification. However, the intent is taking you through that on the front end is supposed to mitigate as much brain damage as possible in the middle of the end. The other nice thing is, is that once we have the template – we're not having to take you through that that uh, cycle of prequal again. We update the file. There's still documents that we need you to continue to give us, like expirable pay stubs and bank statements and things. But it shouldn't be anywhere near as intensive as the first go around once we, we go through it once. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a few days of kind of annoying emails back and forth of explaining this and give us this file. But in the end, it's going to be better. We hope. 
We hope you think so. <laughs> All right. All right, Taylor. We'll Thank talk you, to you Blaine. later. Yeah. I'm, if you need me, you know how to reach me. Yeah, call me on the other. It's great talking to you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. See you. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you're the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.